Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On katetalk.co.za. On the app. On DSTV channel 885. And across the city on 567 AM. Join the conversation. This is Cape Talk. This is Cape Talk. Friday morning is always a very interesting morning, but when it comes to the first uh, or the final Naked Scientist Kids edition for 2022, it becomes an even marvelous, more marvelous edition than anything else. This morning, the lovely kids from John Graham Primary School, I think they're out in the Plumstead area, they join us this morning, and Mrs. Lodeveik, Head of Science, will guide us through this particular segment. Uh, Mrs. Lodeveik, a very good morning to you, and welcome to Cape Talk. Good morning. Thank you very much for having us. You must be saying, shoo, thank heavens it's the last day of school today. No, it's not the last day. <laughs> um, the last day? We still, no, next week and Wednesday will be our last day. Oh, my goodness. Oh, okay. A, a number of schools have already finished or a number of schools are finishing today. Uh, and you guys are finishing off next week, Wednesday. I'm going to add an extra day of holiday for you next year, okay? Oh, <laughs> You, you have a very active science club and a very active science sort of segment at the school. I saw that you were having a bird talk and the children were, were listening very attentively to that. Um, you can start us off with the, the very first uh, child who is um, Gabriella Mansoso is in grade four. I, I think her question is very interesting. Will do. I'll pass you on to Gabriella. Hi there. My name is Gabrielle Mansoso and my question is, what is the value of cockroaches in our environment? <laughs> Hello, Gabrielle. Well, the answer is you could ask that of any animal. You could say, what's the value of anything in the environment? And the way that nature works is that the planet gets its energy from the sun and plants capture the energy from the sun and they use the process called photosynthesis to turn the sun's energy into chemical energy, in other words, food. And then something eats the plants and liberates that energy and other things eating the thing that eat the plants, then get energy too. So you create all these opportunities in different places on Earth, in different environments, for things to live and exploit a source of food. So anything that exists, exists because it has a niche. There's an opportunity for it to fit into the, the web of life on Earth, exploiting a supply of food or energy that someone else isn't exploiting. And cockroaches therefore exist because they're very good at exploiting a source of food and living in an environment that other creatures don't live in. And if you took cockroaches away, then that would mean there was an opportunity. It would be a bit like if you wanted to build a house because you wanted somewhere to live, you'd look down the street and you might see a gap and you'd say, ah, there's a gap there. I can put my house in that gap. Well, that's exactly what nature does. And it would create a new species, as in one would evolve to fill in that gap and make the most of that opportunity. And that's exactly what cockroaches have done. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you see, don't chase the cockroaches away. They, they, they fill a very, very important function uh, in your home. 
Uh, chatting this morning to the children at John Graham Primary School, and we're chatting to the head of science there, Mrs. Ludovic, and we're chatting with uh, Dr. Chris Smith, the late kid scientist. Uh, Mrs. Ludovic, who's up next? Next, we have Leah Jeppy. Hi, Chris. My name is Leah Jeppy, and my question for you is, what would happen if all the gases known to Earth were to combine in a certain area? Well, uh, the, the answer is that some gases are far more reactive than others. And when we say they're reactive, they have the ability to interact chemically together to make new things. Now, some gases are really boring and stable, and they don't do very much. A good example of that is nitrogen. Four-fifths of the atmosphere around the planet and four-fifths of every breath of air you take in is nitrogen. And that doesn't do very much. You have to work very hard to make nitrogen do anything. It's just there. Carbon dioxide is relatively unreactive as well. But some gases are extremely powerful and they're extremely reactive and what we call unstable. They're looking for an opportunity to react with some other gas or some other substance in order to reach a more stable configuration. They're a bit like a bully walking down the street looking for a fight. And they, they just want to punch someone. So if you took all the gases on Earth that we know exist and you put them in one place, they would be the most almighty punch-up. Now, not everyone would get involved in that punch-up and some boring gases like nitrogen would probably sit there and not do very much. But other gases, which are like those big bruising bullies looking for a fight, they would react and they would find the other bullies that are itching for a fight and they would react together and there would be a big explosion, and the result would be everybody would would beat each other up and produce a much calmer situation afterwards where all the gases would react to make the most stable gases effectively the most boring gases that they possibly could with what was available to them. That is what would happen. That hopefully answers Thank your you. question via Jeppe in grade 6. Uh, Mrs. Dudevek, who's up next? We have Adam. Good morning, Chris. My question for you is how and why does the universe expand and is the uh, black hole a doorway to other dimensions? <laughs> Hi, Adam. We don't know uh, is the answer. What we do know is the universe is about 13.8 billion years old. And to give you some comparison, the Earth is about 4.5 billion years old. So the universe is about three times older than the, than the Earth is. And we know that when the universe started it appears it began as a huge release of energy from a point that was incredibly small and incredibly dense. And it went from something tiny, infinitesimally small and energetic, into the vast thing we have today. So therefore it must have inflated or expanded. We also know from various measurements that we've made that at certain points in its life it hasn't grown at a steady rate. In order for us to see the structure and make the measurements that we do, the universe must have at certain times grown incredibly fast and at other times grow more slowly. And when we make observations today of distant things in the universe, we look at other galaxies like ours, for example, the farther away we look, in other words, the further back in time, because light takes time to reach us, the faster those objects appear to be retreating from us. And this is our evidence that the universe is growing today. And it looks like the older it gets, the faster it grows. So it appears that the universe, when it was first born, grew incredibly quickly, then it slowed down a bit, and then it's speeding up again. Now, we don't know why this is, but we have invoked an entity which scientists refer to as dark energy to explain this. 
And the idea is that as you make more space, in other words, more universe, you get more dark energy. And dark energy pushes things apart. So if you make more dark energy, you push things apart more. So the more space you get, the more dark energy you get, and therefore the faster things are pushed apart and the more space you get. So it goes into a sort of positive feedback loop. And this means that it could be that the universe is going to continue to expand faster and faster forever, or it could do what it did right at the birth of the universe again and expand for a while and then slow down again because we don't know what all of the factors or all of the players controlling the size and shape and the ultimate fate of the universe are. And that's what physicists are currently grappling with as well as many other important problems to try to understand. Now you ask about black holes. We don't really know what they are either except that they are points in the universe which are intensely gravitationally active and they're so gravitationally active that they bend or deform the fabric of space to such an extent that light can't escape, not even light can escape. And this is why they look black or dark, because when light goes past them, it is drawn in or falls in to this deformation or distortion in the fabric of space. If you imagine a trampoline and you dropped a really heavy cannonball in the middle of the trampoline and it bent the trampoline right down in the middle, this is what black holes do to space. And so when light goes past wanders down across the curved space and ends up in the bottom of this well and never comes out. Now, what is at the end of that black hole? We don't know. And there are some theories that suggest that the universe may actually be one of many and that we're in one universe, there may be other parallel universes. And perhaps black holes in this universe are spitting out material in a new big bang or a new white hole, as it's called, in another universe. But this is just theoretical, and we have no evidence for that whatsoever. So the answer is, we don't know, and you should become a physicist and try and solve these problems in your career. There we go. There's a career choice for you. The final Naked Scientist Kids edition this morning uh, in 2022. Nariman Ludovic, the head of science at John Graham Primary School, joining us. Nariman, who do we have up next? Next we have Sadie. Good morning, Chris. My name is Sadie, and my question is, what is the two most flammable gases and why? Oh, hello, Sadie. Well, the answer is that we have to first define what we mean by flammable. And if something is flammable, then it has the ability to burn or react or explode. And really, it means that there are many, many gases that could be considered flammable. Because when a gas burns, what it's doing is reacting with something that oxidises it. It pulls the molecule to pieces and makes more molecules that are more stable, or, as I put it earlier, more boring. And so you can choose a whole raft of different chemicals, a whole raft of different gases, which will react with each other, and therefore could be considered flammable. It's hard to define exactly what the most flammable is. There's, there's one which is called trichlorofluoride, which is chlorine linked up to fluorine. And this appears to react with anything. It can even make sand and gravel burn. It's horrible stuff. You must never touch that. So that could be one of them. But you could then say, well, what about hydrogen and oxygen? This is very flammable. It burns to make water and release heat. What about the butane that you're burning in your cooker or your barbecue? That's also very flammable in oxygen. So it's very hard to say what the most flammable gas is because it really depends on what the circumstances are and what's reacting with what. But the definition of flammable is something that has the ability to combust or burn or be oxidised when it meets something like the oxygen in the air. Uh, Mrs. Ludovic, who's up next? Dakira's next. Hi, Chris. My name is Dakira Sali, and how are you doing today? 
questions for you today is what makes us human and why do we feel at times that we do the same thing twice? <laughs> well, I think probably what makes us human is that we know who we are and we have an idea as to the fact that we're born and that one day we will die. So we have a, a concept of our mortality and we also do all the things that are uniquely human. We show emotions and we cry. We love each other. We, we look after each other when we're unwell and, uh, and we speak to each other. And these appear to be traits that are unique to humans. Other animals, while they use sounds for communication, they don't have language like we do. Other animals don't appear to cry like we do. So our visual emotions are particularly strong and profound and we use those to good effect to get other people to help us and support us and, and love us. And, and I think the idea that we understand that we're only here for a certain period of time, from the time we're born to the time we die, I think that is also a unique thing in humans. I don't think other animals necessarily have that same insight into mortality. And I remember when I was little, when I realised that one day I was going to have to die, I was not very happy about that. <laughs> and, but as I've got older, I've become more comfortable with the fact that we're thankfully only here for a limited period of time. And it means you make the most of the time that you do have chatting this morning to the naked scientist dr chris smith and we are at john graham primary school um nariman who is up next tyler ramos good morning chris my question for you today is why is there only life on earth Lovely. I realise I didn't answer why do we sometimes think that uh, we've done the same thing twice. And the answer is that we are all human and we all make mistakes. And sometimes we misremember things, as the royal family in the UK are fond of saying. Recollections may vary. Uh, and so sometimes we don't realise we've, we've done something twice. Sometimes we forget. Sometimes the memory is wrong and we haven't done it twice at all. We just think we have and we have a condition called deja vu. But on to this question, which is uh, why is there only life on Earth? Well, that assumes that there is only life on Earth. And actually, we don't know that that's true. We don't know that the Earth is the only place for life. We know that at the moment, we humans are only found on Earth. We're pretty comfortable about that. But what we don't know is whether there is life elsewhere in our own solar system, the clutch of planets and their moons that we have around our sun, or whether out there in the vastness of space... There is another planet Earth with life flourishing on it. We also don't know if our next near neighbour, like Mars, for example, may have uh, in the past hosted life or may indeed still host life today. And that's one project that uh, a range of different entities and space agencies are pursuing very hard. There are currently rovers trundling around on the surface of Mars exploring places that looked like they were once home to lots of water, which we think is essential as an ingredient for life, and they're collecting samples and making analyses to see if they can find the chemical fingerprints of life gone by. They may also collect samples that we will retrieve here to Earth in the future, which will be analysed more to see if there was life there in the past. But at the, at the moment, as far as we know, we are the only inhabited, life-giving planet in our solar system. And there are various reasons why, and one of those reasons is the Earth is a perfect home for us. It's the right distance away from the sun in order for liquid water to exist here, and we think that having a liquid environment with based on water is critical for many of the processes that make life possible. So we're in just the right distance away from a sun that's just the right temperature to give us an ideal home, so that's part and parcel of it. But we know that life got started on Earth very quickly, and the planet's about 4.5 billion years old, and we have evidence from some very old rocks and rock samples collected many of them in Australia, in Western Australia, from about 4 billion years ago that seemed to suggest chemically there was already life here then. So 
Either life came from elsewhere in space and got life going on the Earth, or the processes that give rise to life get established fairly easily and fairly readily in the right environment. And given how big space is, and we think that there are about a couple of hundred billion stars in this galaxy, and there are a couple of hundred billion galaxies out there, that means that there are billions upon billions upon billions of stars like our sun, and therefore planets like our Earth out there in space that may be in just the right place to have just the right conditions. And if we got here, it's very likely that elsewhere in space, there'll be other life out there somewhere in the vastness of the universe. Dr. Chris Smith chatting to us this morning. Doctor, I just had to put Johannes's mind at ease now and say to him that there is possibly life in a different form on a planet somewhere because it's uh, something that also puzzles him from time to time. Mrs. Ludovic, Head of Science, chatting to us at uh, the uh, John Graham Primary School this morning. Mrs. Ludovic, who's up next? We have Rachel. Good morning, Chris. My name is Rachel Grosh, and my question for you is, if the Earth is round, how is it possible for us to be living on flat land? Oh, hello, Rachel. Well, the Earth is round, and we know it's round, because if we go into space, we can look down on the planet and see that it's a big ball floating around in space. And if we put things like satellites up into space, they go around in a big circle called an orbit and come back to where they started. So therefore, the Earth is a ball, and and it's round. So why, when we're standing on the surface of it, does it look flat? Well, it looks flat, depending upon which scale you look at. Near to you, it looks flat, because you're only looking at a very short distance into the distance if you go up in the air of course it looks curved because you can see much further and because the earth is so big relative to us the ground is curving very gently relative to you so to your you nearby it looks flat but on a great distance it's curved and the best way of convincing yourself of this is to go to the beach next time you have a chance to go down the 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 seafront and watch a boat on the horizon And watch the boat disappear over the horizon as it steams away from you. And you'll see the bottom of the boat disappear first. And eventually just the top of the boat will will remain visible. And this is because the boat has sailed over the curvature of the earth. So only the topmost parts will still be visible to you, proving to you that the earth is curved. And the reason that we're able to walk around on flat land, despite being on a giant curved ball, and people in the southern hemisphere are not upside down compared to people in the northern hemisphere, or vice versa, is because of gravity. And gravity is a function of anything that's big or massive, in other words, weighs a lot. And the effect of gravity is to pull everything down towards the centre of the planet. So if you're being pulled towards the centre of the Earth, you always stand up straight on your patch of land and it curves very slowly so you think it's flat and you always think you're the right way up. And that hopefully answers your question. And uh, Mrs. Ludovic, who do we have up next? We have Eli. Good morning, Chris. My name is Eli Marina. And my question for you today is how does the brain communicate to the rest of our organs to work? Right. The brain coordinates with the body through the nervous system. And the nervous system is in two parts. There's what we call the central nervous system, which is your brain and your spinal cord, and the peripheral nervous system, which is everything outside the brain and the spinal cord. And there are connections, nerves, that run between the major centres in your brain, down your spinal cord, and then out into your body to supply critical things that you need to send messages to or receive messages from. So, for instance, your skin is full of nerves that send sensory information back into the nervous system in order to tell you what the temperature is, 
Where your body is in space, if you lift up your arm and point towards the ceiling, your joints are signalling to your brain, saying, this is where my arm is in space. When you are moving your arm, stretch receptors in your muscles know how fast your arm is extending, and they're telling your brain, this is how fast my arm is moving, so this is where my arm must be in three-dimensional space around my body. At the same time, the brain is sending signals out to make those movements possible in motor nerves, which trigger those organs to operate. There are also things like glands. We have our adrenal glands, which produce hormones, and the brain tells via another set of nerves those glands to produce adrenaline, put it into the bloodstream. It'll make the heart go faster, it makes your blood pressure go up, it keys you up to run a race, do an exam, or run away from somebody. So the body is a system of organs which send signals through the nervous system to the central nervous system and receive information from the central nervous system but they can also secrete chemicals and signals into the bloodstream which go all around the body and they can carry messages too. So we're one big interconnected group of systems that all work together to keep each other alive. We're like a giant community inside ourselves where everything depends on everything else in order to work properly. That is uh, the question for Dr. Chris Smith this morning, and we are getting our questions from the John Graham Primary School, the head of science there, and Mrs. Lurebeck chatting to us this morning. Mrs. Lurebeck, I think we have one more question left, and I think this comes from Adam Caswell, if I'm correct. Yes, you are, you are correct. Here we go. Morning, Adam. Good morning, Chris. My name is Adam Caswell. And my question for you is how are the pyramids made in Egypt? I find it so weird because one one brick weighs 80 tons and I don't understand how people that haven't even discovered technology yet can achieve su- such success in lofting 80 tons to 100 meters. Mm, it's amazing isn't it? The pyramids are about 5,000 years old as well so people had this idea, had this notion and this insight to do this this giant building project which is still here and we still marvel at it today almost 5,000 years later, and it it is almost inconceivable that it was achieved. The stone that's in there, as you say, is enormous blocks that were transported enormous distances. They were cut and beautifully finished and moved into position with enormous precision. Those engineers and those architects really knew a thing or two about how to build. They didn't immediately do that. They had to do some experimentation first, and they had a few goes at doing this kind of thing before they really nailed it and started to build the really big pyramids. And and you can look at in, in Egypt and find evidence of their previous efforts that weren't so successful. They used different materials, they built in slightly different ways, but by the time they got to their peak, they really knew what they were doing and they'd really worked it out. And really it's a sign or a testimony of human endeavour Enormous numbers of people were involved, enormous numbers of people in some cases who gave their lives to the cause of building the pyramids. And it it just goes to show what if you have a big society or a big group and you get them to work together, what can be achieved? But it's certainly a staggering demonstration of of just how advanced people were even 5,000 years ago. Dr. Chris Smith chatting to us this morning. Uh, Mrs. Nariman uh, Ludovic, uh, also the head of science from John Graham Primary. Uh, Nariman, you must be looking forward to finishing of this year. Do you have a question for Chris? Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let me think. I, I, you, you caught me off guard now. Um, yes, I do. I do. I actually, um, explain what happens to our bodies when we have a heart attack. When you're having a heart attack, your heart is a muscle. 
and is supplied by arteries called coronary arteries which carry blood into the muscle because the heart muscle needs blood like any other muscle in your body. If an, an artery supplying part of the heart blocks and this is called a coronary thrombosis, that patch of muscle is starved of blood supply. And if you starve the muscle of blood supply, you starve it of oxygen and food. And if you starve it of oxygen and food, that patch of muscle begins to die. And if you don't unblock the artery sufficiently quickly, then that patch of the muscle will irreversibly be damaged. And instead of uh, working as a muscle that can beat and contribute to pumping blood, it just becomes a hard, rough scar in the heart. And if that's sufficiently big, then it can impair the ability of the heart to pump in future and you get a condition called heart failure. So a heart attack is where you obstruct a coronary artery and you de deprive a patch of, of, of muscle of its blood flow. It doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you can't reverse that situation though because there are ways to unclog arteries and to do it with chemicals that you inject into the bloodstream that will bust open the clot and restore the blood flow. So if you can diagnose that this has happened sufficiently quickly, intervene sufficiently fast, then you can hopefully stop the worst outcomes of that happening. And a good scientist with us every Friday morning between 9.30 and 10 o'clock, time for the latest Eyewitness News.